Welcome to CubeCast, where we talk about all things finance and investing. All opinions expressed are solely the opinion of the individuals and do not reflect the opinions of the firms they work for. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Securities mentioned on the podcast may be owned by Cube or the guests on the show. With that, Let's get this episode underway with the founder of Cube, Bez Bairami and Principal and Director of Capital Markets at InnoVest, Stephen Fraley. Hey, 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 what is going on, Cube family? Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys enjoyed the holidays. Happy New Year to you all. We are going to have an interesting podcast today, really centered around the topic of what we're looking for in investments. Pretty much, how do we finally decide this is the stock I want to buy? I'm joined by Stephen Fraley, as you guys have seen him on the last few episodes. Again, a face you're going to continue to see this year. Stephen, how you doing, man? Happy New Year to you, brother. Yeah, Baz, doing well. 2024, off to a, to a hot start already, so all is good. And hope uh, you're doing well. Hope you're staying healthy. Look forward to uh, getting getting together here a little bit more frequently. Absolutely, man. There's going to be a lot of great topics we discuss. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of headlines that we have to cover because I, I just got this feeling that this year is going to be a wild one. I know that you could say about any year, but especially on election years, they always find a way to be tricky, volatile. And it's just the nature of the beast at this point. It's like post-COVID, just get used to it, gear up for it, because volatility is yeah. just comes with the package now, it seems. Yep, just buckle up and, you know enjoy the ride, I guess. But it's 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 so true. I mean, COVID just, I don't know if it fast forwarded things, but everything is more volatile, more compressed in, in the shorter timeframes, right? I mean, we're getting movements and interest rates and equity market indexes that normally happen over the course of years. And we're, they're happening in several months or weeks. I mean, it's absolutely, long. man. You have commodities moving like penny stocks. You know, I know we were discussing natural gas in the group chat earlier. It, the, the way it's moving, it's crazy too. The way it's sold off, the way it bounces, it there's going to be so much to talk about this year. So with that being said, I kind of wanted to make this conversation, this podcast here about when we look at a company, first off, how do we even get down to a filter? Are you big? We'll start with this, right? Because there's so many stocks to choose from. Sometimes people are just getting into the market after listening to this. They're like, where do I even begin? There are thousands of stocks on the market. I have yeah. a blank canvas here. Where do I start? I'm going to guess your answer before you say it. I think first you have to ask yourself, what are your goals? What kind of risk can you handle? And then I guess the rest kind of flows from there on, right? Because if you don't know who you are and what your goal is, then you have no idea what to even invest in to begin with. Would I be wrong in assuming that's your answer? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the the certainly the um, kind of blanketed answer. I think it, it ultimately depends on somebody's experience, right? Again, what are they trying to achieve? Um, some people have, you know, just no right buying individual stocks, right? Just they shouldn't be. Um, but even if you if you you know kind of strip that out, I mean, even if you are hiring a, a professional, you may want to know what kind of do you want to go for higher growth, right? I mean. You want more defensive names, dividend paying names, right? And that can all kind of filter into that same same process, same questions. You know, what are your goals? What are your objectives? So totally agree. Yeah, because for me personally starting out, I can tell you, even though 
you know, I'm in my thirties now, uh, the investing seasoned, seasoned veteran now, now. I mean, yeah. I think, yeah, 30s. I think I can say that now considering starting in college, but the way I was investing in college versus today is definitely different. Um, and even though I consider myself a pretty risky investor, I've definitely moved up the ladder in aversion. So I'm not as risky as I used to be. Uh, I make fun of myself for it all the time because sometimes I say to myself, the way I'm buying bonds or sitting on cash, you'd think I'm maybe in my 40s or 50s. But it really all comes down to how well you can sleep at night. Anytime I own too much of a stock where I was tossing and turning, thinking about it, it was usually a good telltale sign for me to say, you know what, let me uh, scale out of the position a little bit because I'm just too heavy in this risky name. Guys, you're just an old soul, man, you know? It's true, man. Especially if you see like my Spotify playlist, I I'm living in the eighties, man. You'd hey. think I was not, I'm not a 93 baby. You really think I'm an 83. Yeah, that's good stuff. Good stuff. So, uh, so I think when, if I was giving advice to even my, myself starting out, if I go back all these years or just to anyone listening now who is and maybe even invested in they're like, I'm confused. I'm just going about it. Whatever I see on CNBC or whatever someone talks about on TikTok. Or if you just have a blank canvas, like I said, and you're looking at, uh, you know, an empty Schwab account right now, empty Robinhood account, you're ready to buy your first stock. First, ask yourself what your goal is. Is it capital appreciation? Is it steady passive income through dividends? Uh, things of that nature. And then you can start to trickle down here. Okay. I would say the next step after that is, uh, and you mentioned this in one of the episodes we did recently, which is uh, sticking to what you know in, yeah, in a way, right? Totally. So understanding names that you're familiar with, you've seen, uh, is definitely a good first step to starting out. Yeah, I totally agree. So yeah, goals and objectives first and foremost. After that, if you're just trying to start out, you're you're interested, start with an industry or a sector or something that you know, right? Whether it's because you have personal work experience there or you just, it, it's an interest of yours, right? So you've spent a lot of time studying and researching, but start with something you know and understand and then kind of build off of that. I'd say that makes total sense and just makes that, you know, kind of diving into the, the stock market world a little little bit less daunting yeah. um, from the get-go. Absolutely. And I'm going to go ahead and say this too. Uh, I implore the people listening to just avoid those nano cap stocks. Save your time. Save your time. I, I can't say enough. Personally, they've never worked out for me. Uh, like when you start to go into like sub 40 million, 30 million dollar market caps, or you're investing in penny stocks like on the OTC, you know, pink sheet type stuff. I would avoid that if I had to say, if I can give like actual, actual advice here that you could take away, avoid that. I've gotten burned doing that. I would avoid the levered ETFs and ETNs that you think um, are going to make you a ton of money that we mentioned in a few other episodes. I would definitely have you diversify, which I know sounds boring. My rule of thumb, I really don't like to surpass 10% of my portfolio in any given stock on a cost basis. Now, if the stock happens to start running compared to the rest of your portfolio, that's a different story because you're sitting on gains here. But as far as your initial capital goes, I personally don't like to cross 10%. Steve, do you have anything along those lines you follow? Are there any rules that you say to yourself, I just can't break it. I've learned them over the years. I have to stick to this rubric. I mean, in terms of, you know, portfolio kind of positioning or allocation, I think, again, it, it just totally depends on your experience. What is your financial position, right? I mean, you know, it just, it's so dependent on so many different factors, right? I mean, I understand some people that truly have the belief that I want to own two or three stocks because I'm going to know them better than anybody. 
And I have 100% conviction because I've done the work and those are the names I want to own. I don't want to diversify away from those names because I have the utmost conviction in the story, in the business, and I'm going to ride with it over time. I mean, I have a, a good, good buddy, colleague of mine that I used to work with at Emerson, and he has been in Tesla since the IPO and has continued to own it, hold it through all the you know trials and tribulations along the way. And had, knows more about that stock than anybody I've ever met and continues yeah. to let it ride in the face of all the craziness that Elon Musk brings uh, every single day. So no, it, sure. it's tough. I mean, for the average you know person starting out, that's probably not the, of course, the best way to go about it. Right. But I mean, you do want to play your strengths. Right. So if you are in the software space, you kind of have a good idea. You know, your finger is on the pulse of who is doing well, whose products are selling well. You know, use it to your advantage. Like you have friends that you maybe graduated college with. They went off to be uh, on on sales teams for different software companies. And you just see the lifestyle that they're living. You see how things are going. You're like, those guys are crushing it, man. And yeah. you, could, you could use it to your advantage. You, you have your finger on the pulse. People who work in the auto space, use it to your advantage. I, I know when I was um, at JP Morgan, I was like, no, man, the, like, the business is doing well. Like I'm going to keep my 401k adding some continued yep. JPM shares. I, I see what's going on here. I have a good idea of what the interest rate background is looking like, how our net interest performance is doing. Use it to your advantage. So uh, and really uh -huh. in any industry it applies. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Obviously, right, if you're just truly, this is you know retirement planning type of stuff, be diversified, don't take any unnecessary risks, really focus on your goals and objectives. If you're young, if this is something that you're really trying to evolve and grow into something super meaningful, I mean, you know, there's always kind of the the old sayings that, you know, you have to take concentrated risks to to potentially grow the wealth that you want. And then once you get it, then you can diversify. Right. So there's kind True. of different ways um, to think about another good kind of example, just through, you know, somebody that I know personally, someone that was on the sell side covering tech semiconductors. Well, one of the names that, that they covered NVIDIA ended up going to work for NVIDIA within their investor relations. Right. So, again, mm -hmm. it's kind of knowing knowing the business that individual took that leap, right? You know, when NVIDIA still wasn't the established company it was today because they saw from the research they had done, wow, there's a huge opportunity. They're doing great. They're doing something that nobody else is and took an opportunity to, to, to go over um, to the other side. Absolutely. I think, and I'm curious what you think about this because I don't think we ever spoke about it. Most people that are in the Cube uh, chat that are subscribed to Cube, they generally have their 401ks tucked away. They're adding to them. They're taking advantage of the match. And yep. then we kind of leverage each other's backgrounds, financial statement analysis to then have a secondary portfolio with our additional cash that we have after all our budgeting, all our expenses in our own individual brokerage accounts to invest more actively. Yep. Are you, what are your thoughts on something along those lines? Because I'm actually in, in favor of that. Uh, and I would still be doing that if I was still in the corporate setting, uh, because I also want to talk about liquidity without getting too off topic here. Uh, but I'm a fan of the two investment account approach because like for me, there, the investing is an, it, it's for a goal. And that goal is that I can grow this account of mine that I am individually managing, right? Uh, in an effort to grow it to an extent that when I'm 50 years old, 55, 60, 
I can, or even earlier, if I'm being honest here, but I'm, I'm yeah, trying yeah. to, I'm really trying to pace myself and set expectations right. But if I really wanted to say like 45 and 15 more years that I can then leverage to grow a real estate portfolio that would help, you know, uh, take care of me in retirement. You know, yeah, that is my um, goal. But if you have a 401k, you can't really touch that till 60, right? And so there's liquidity yeah. constraints there that I know everyone loves the 401k and I do too, but I really am a fan of the two in investment account approach. That just yeah, me personally. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Totally agree. I mean, you, we talk about diversifying, you know, your investment portfolio. Well, that's a good way to diversify kind of your, you know, deferred investments versus taxable, right? Because yes. at the end of the day, you don't know what taxes are going to be in the future. Again, it's just kind of diversifying, um, you know, the structure of the investment, something that's readily available right there, assuming you're already, you know, making your, your K plan um, contribution, you're getting your match, maybe you're maxing it out. Great. Start siphoning away anything additionally into an investment portfolio, learning along the way, um, and ultimately trying to compound that over over long periods of time. Uh, with you personally, so when you started working corporate, uh, you, I believe, based on what you were telling me, so you already had the invest your individual brokerage account set up before you probably even started working, right? I think you started what was in college. Uh, you were saying so you already had that set up, and then so the four hundred one k came after. I think for you, right? Yeah, and that happened to be just yeah something that came along the way when I was younger, and I got interested in in the market. Um, literally happened. I think I explained. I can't remember if it was on a podcast, but through basically my mother, who was an investment professional. So we kind yeah. of talked. Those were our conversations, and we ended up opening a joint account because I was under the age of eighteen. Correct. Um, you know that would ultimately be able to to transfer to me upon you know reaching that age. Um, so yeah, right, so then you already started, had it then, set up. Yep. And then when you got to work, you're like, okay, I'm going to match, do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So then, did, you know, the 401k plan, you know, contributed, you know, what reasonably I could tried to max it out as, as early as possible. Um, and then, you know, along the way, as hopefully people get further into their careers, as their earning potential and power improves, they can quickly max out their, their 401k plan and then siphon anything else um kind of again stockpile that away into a to a brokerage or investment portfolio absolutely i'm I'm in big agreement there now that we're funneling along this conversation here now if you are doing that right because i am a big fan of the 401k for the simple fact that it forces you to think long term be passive fully diversify amazing let's hone in now on the second account where you are managing it yourself yeah now, if you're going to pick stocks individually, like we're talking about, yes, absolutely. It's good to know where you're investing in, no doubt. That's common sense. But we do need to talk about having some kind of uh, basic understanding at a minimum of financial statement analysis. Yeah. Like, I, I cannot believe how little people, how few people really understand to even know what the three income statements, uh, uh, excuse me, financial statements are with income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flows. They don't even know they exist, let alone understand what each line item of those mean. What do you think would be smart for someone to do in that case? Um, is there any books you'd recommend or anything in that regard uh, just to learn exactly how to understand financial statements? Aside from joining Cube, of course, which is what I help people do. But aside from that, anything that you've done, I know I know you went to school for it like I did. So we kind of learned at college. Yeah. Was there anything outside of college where like you can say this helped me out? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, in college, right, it was like I was more reluctant. It was like, oh, I had to learn this stuff and, you know, basic, you know, finance or accounting courses, right? And at the time, you know, it's always like I wish I would have actually, you know, paid attention a little bit more, right? That's usually how it goes. And you look back, you're like, you know what? That would have actually been relevant because um, at the time I'm like, yeah, I'm, I hate accounting, right? I don't want to be an accountant. Oh, then you like get to like classes. level one of the CFA and that's the entire level one is based on reading financial statements. I'm like, holy cow, what is happening? Is this CPA? Am I, am I in the wrong, you know, test? Is this supposed to be the CPA or what? <laughs> um, but I think, yeah. So one of my favorites is um, the intelligent investor, um, Benjamin Graham. Um, you know, Random Walk Down Wall Street, similar book, I was going to say, Burton Macule. Yeah. Um, great books, great starting point. Um, you know, focusing on, again, kind of reading historically about some of those early pioneers of investing, how they went about it. I mean, it was all basically reading financial statements and understanding the business. Um, you know, something I, I don't, you know, quite frankly, probably don't spend enough time on that as I should. It's mainly let's look at the balance sheet and let's look at cash flow statement. I mean, those are kind of where I start just because I want to see, you know, the general financial health on the balance sheet, what does it look like? How much debt are we carrying, et cetera? And then I like to see, you know, how that ultimately flows, you know, income statement, then ultimately, most importantly to me is generally um, the cash flow statement. 100%. If you told me I can only analyze a company on one statement, it's cash flows. Sure. And the reason for that is at the very top, you're already starting with net income. So that already gives you an yeah, idea yeah, what exactly. the bottom income statement is. Yeah. I mean, I could dig into the income statement more, but I, again, Know, know where we start and then I can really dig in. But again, just kind of understanding how we are from a financial health standpoint, you know, how much debt do we have? What are our assets? That gives you a quick view. Yep. Of, you know, what are your short-term marketable security assets, right? Stuff that can be easily converted or used uh, for the business. And then how much debt are we care? That gives you a pretty for good sure. idea, of, at least from the get-go. All right. You know, they're probably not going to, you know, go under in the next year. Absolutely. So this is, and I wanted to really get into the crux here because this is where I want to center a lot of the conversation around me personally, when I am looking for investments now. So just to walk you through what we've progressed on so far. Okay. You've asked yourself the goals that you have. You kind of yep. gauge where your risk is at. You have now maybe two accounts set up, one a little more passive that you don't have to worry about individual company risk on your 401k or what have you. Then you have your individual account where you say, okay, I want to actually invest in some individual stocks. Point A we made was, yeah, start with things you know, absolutely. If you start, you know, diversifying is important. Fun little fact about Benjamin Graham that you mentioned, which not, not a lot of people know, is he speaks so much about diversification, so much about mm -hmm. risk management, but almost all of his wealth is attributed to one investment where he puts almost all of his eggs in one basket of Geico. So that's go. a very interesting uh, thing that not many people and then about. you know who who is the 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 most you know legendary investor of all time and what is one of the longest held positions they've had that's got warren buffett i mean it's amazing um but to your point you know diversification everyone preaches it but i think a lot of the you know legacy professional investors will say yeah you know diversification yeah sure yeah that's what we're <laughs> supposed to tell you but that's not how we became wealthy right I mean, exactly i feel you there so, uh, and, all right. So as we continue there, so that we're going through there now, okay, you're ready to invest in individual stocks. Now you're saying, all right, I know this company exists. I've been looking into it. I've been doing some researching on, on the industry that they operate in. Yep. I need to know though, is the company specifically okay? Now here's what I will say. So if we're going to talk about the balance sheet, things we're talking about the balance sheet that Steven already mentioned, you want to see cash on hand, uh, cash equivalents, short-term investments, 
that they own like treasuries and whatnot. You would then yeah. want to look at, as we stay on the asset side, you want to take a good look at accounts receivable. I've been bit in the past on names where accounts receivable, I did not pay close enough attention. This was like back in 2018, accounts receivable were growing way faster than revenue was growing. Accounts receivable guys, if you're not too familiar, is pretty much collections, okay? You perform the service, but you haven't gotten paid yet and you're waiting to collect that money. If that number continues to grow, you have to question, can this company actually collect? How credit worthy are their customers? Because if the money's not coming in, you know, and they're reporting revenue. It, the revenue is being yeah. shown because they perform the service. So you think the business is great, but if they're not actually collecting the cash, you have an issue. So let's, you really want to sure. watch the accounts receivable. If you keep moving down, you want to watch Goodwill. Oh, this number kills me. When people inflate, these companies inflate their assets with intangibles that, no. okay, yeah. how do you place a value on what a patent is? And Goodwill for you guys that don't really understand what that might be. Let's say Scoo's company is on the stock market trading for 100 million and I go and pay 150 million for it. That 50 million essentially is going, that additional 50 million is going as goodwill uh, on my balance sheet after I take him over. Uh, if I really can sim it down in the most basic way possible. So I hate that figure because it's the value of the brand over the current market valuation. The hell with all that. It, but it makes you think that you got yourself a company with some serious assets any creditor that's lending to the company does not give a damn about the intangibles. Yeah, then they're, they not, go, they're certainly exactly. not lending on goodwill. So yeah. No, and then you got the whole patent portfolio, which is extremely difficult to quantify what the true value of that is, your trademarks sure, yeah. and things of that sort. So just take that with a grain of salt. Pay close attention to what percentage of those assets are being made up by those intangibles. As we move further down, and Stephen, please interrupt me where you want. I'm just, I get heated about this, this stuff because- uh, there's so much corporate stuff that goes on that you just want to shake some of these CFOs and, and the things that they play. And, and uh, sometimes you have to dive into 10 Ks and 10 Qs to get even a little more color on what exactly uh, is making up these line items, right? For example, March of almost a year ago, this time, everyone thinks these regional banks are healthy. Why? Because those uh, available for sale securities, they weren't being marked to marketed. You didn't see how, how much they deteriorated on their financials. You know, yep. their assets look great until you dive into their 10 Qs and 10 Ks and see that they're down 40 to 50% on those exact assets that they claim they have. So with regard to liabilities, guys, on the balance sheet, accounts payable, same thing. That's the company having to, uh, to still cough up money that they've received uh, services for. I want you guys to focus on uh, the debt. And Stephen already mentioned it, how much is on the books. And you also want to pay attention to what the rate is and when those maturities are, guys. Like we, Stephen mentioned, I believe, about some risks for 2024. And I'll let him comment on this a little bit uh, with regard to the commercial real estate market and the wall of maturities that are coming our way. That's extremely important given the rate environment. I want you to chime in on that a little bit there, Steve, and on how you're looking at, when, when you look at debt, right, uh, how important it is to understand even things like, is it convertible? Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. what are the uh, covenants like? You know how many times I had to go into into uh, the, the SEC filings, guys, to really dig into, okay, yeah, they have debt, and it's not due for a while, but sometimes these creditors 
add covenants in there where you can't let cash get below a certain position or you have to maintain a certain level of EBITDA on a trailing 12-month period. These are so important and it all goes into individually investing, which is why professionals are so quick to tell you to stick to ETFs. Yeah, yeah. And for, yeah, overwhelming majority of people, you know, they, that's exactly what they should do. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, things that you have to look into, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, you just have to be very, you know, leery and weary of, of anything that's happening, right? There's a lot of aggressive accounting tactics that, that companies can use financial engineering. I mean, it's gap, scary. People are non-gap really at, depreciation cycles, I mean, amortization cycles. Yeah, whether it's public market, you know, CFOs, et cetera, whether it's private market investors, I mean, they're all great financial engineers at the end of the day. I mean, they really are. This is not, a, I mean, it's not meant to be a, a blanketed statement that it's a bad thing. Um, financial engineering has basically continued to evolve for, you know, hundreds of years, right? And and we continue to, to find ways to, to be creative that ultimately, you know, I think generally for, you know, folks that are, you know, really true to their word that are trying to, you know, which is the majority of people. I mean, these this has been a creative, right? Ultimately to the business, to shareholders. Um, it's creative ways to go about financing, restructuring, whatever maybe. But of course, there's the people that always take it too far that are doing something shady, that are doing something um, that's a, a certainly a red flag. So, I mean, but, you know, I think, you know, speaking of red flags, like revenue recognition, right? Just being super aggressive in how you re recognize revenue. I know we've talked a lot in the past about stock-based comp. Ooh, um, how you the can cash completely, guys. completely yep. manipulate earnings. Yeah, um, I mean, earnings and, and EPS and EBITDA and a lot of these things, I mean. EBITDA is the greatest financial engineering there is. It is. I mean, you know, I think, what is it? I don't know if it was Buffett or Munger that said basically that every time you hear the word EBITDA, you should just think bullshit, you know? I, I hear you. I hear you. It's you just true. can't trust it, right? And that's why, again, going to the cash flow statement, you can get a better unwinding and, and understanding of how are they actually converting revenue and ultimately income into, um, you know, what, what are they doing with that? Ultimately, how accretive is that to the business? Um, that gives you a better understanding of the true financial strength. Yep. And if the stock-based compensation guys uh, is too high, because a lot of times they inflate cash flow like that because they pay their employees in stock. And you say, well, what's the problem with that? The problem is, is dilutive. So, you know, you have to also then go to the bottom of the income statement yeah. And take a look at year over year what the shares outstanding is when they report EPS. You know, that all of them are intertwined, guys. You need to know that with financial statements. And those are a lot of the red flags we're looking for. If I had to really yeah. put it in a bow on red flags I'm looking for when I look at financial statements, I am looking at stock-based compensation, number one. I'm looking at accounts receivable at number two. Um, I'm also looking at R&D. I was, if you remember, uh, Steve, when we were talking about Twilio, maybe six months ago, before activists started getting involved in all that stuff, we were looking through their their numbers, saying, "Is it time? Is it time? It stocks down like eighty percent or so from highs, whatever the heck it was at the time." And I'm looking at it. Let me let me just take another look at these financials real quick, Steve. Yeah, I'm yep. saying to myself, this company's spending what like a billion dollars in R and D. I said, "What are they building a rocket ship? What exactly is all of that spend?" You know, and you can oh. say, well, listen, maybe that can, you know, they can cut some fat there and that'll eventually lead to some earnings per yeah. share. But I'm asking myself, what's being hidden in R&D? Call me a conspiracy theorist, but there is just like insane numbers there. Peloton's another one. 
don't know if you saw the discussion last weekend we were having, uh, Steve, I, I think you were on vacation or you were skiing, you know, like you always do every other week. Man, <laughs> but, <geez. laughs> but I'm wondering why Peloton has spent $700 million in R&D the last two years. What, what are you work? What groundbreaking technology are you working on when your company is bleeding cash left and right that you can still justify $350 million a year in research yeah. and development? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a huge trend. I saw a great chart on it the other day. And like the, you know, traditionally you had much greater spend on CapEx than R&D, right? Like through public companies and that's completely flip-flop now, right? So it's like, there's no CapEx spending. It's all R&D. Um, it's, it's wild. I've actually seen a lot of information and this is a complete sidebar, but it just shows a lot of aging equipment, a lot of aging, you know, buildings. So because CapEx has basically been ignored, right? Yes. In yes. favor of R&D, in favor of basically, and I don't know if it's a shareholder thing, like shareholders are going to appreciate it more if we're spending less on, you know, fixed fixed assets or CapEx, mm -hmm. and we're spending more on R&D that's, you know, going to lead to future revenue growth, right? But like at the end of the day, sometimes you have to go back and, you know, make all these adjustments, repairs, spend money into the infrastructure of your, you know, your business. And we haven't done that in a long time. So like the, I think I saw like average age of, you know, equipment, buildings, et cetera, is like at, at the highest it's been. Wow. In wow, several, that's a great you know, point. Several decades because people are, you know, foregoing CapEx expenditures because it doesn't look great generally, right? High CapEx. I mean, it's kind of like a, a non-accretive expense, right? I mean, it's yep. not directly flowing to the bottom line, of course, right? And so, it's weighing on cash flow. Exactly. Exactly. No, at I'm some point that's going to catch up to you. At some point you're going to have to spend. On CapEx. For sure. That's a great point you made. Way to way to cover that. Um, and then I want to ask you here. So would you consider yourself, because there's really two trains of thought, which is bottom up versus top down approach. Do you first look, and this would be a top down for those who are not familiar, where you first look at an industry or theme you like, and then you drill down to find the best company you like in that space? Or are you more of a I'll worry about the theme and the asset class or the sector afterwards. I am looking for amazing individual companies yeah. first, and then I'll, I'll work my way up and see if it, it's oh, okay environment. Man. It's a great question. I can't, I can't honestly say that I'm, you know, that those are mutually exclusive for me. Um, it's a combination of both. So like within my kind of just individual stock portfolio, a lot of it's based on where do I think positioning wise is going to make sense based on the macro environment, right? Mm -hmm. So like what has worked good, what hasn't. So a little um, more top down in that regard. Yeah. So that's, you know, more, more top down. And then from there, it's like, you know, let's find names that are an inflection point that maybe have had some challenges because one of the things I think in this environment that we've talked about is it's been like almost like a rolling recession, right? Where like different sectors have gone into recessionary periods Mm -hmm. over the course of the last 18 months. True. But it's been spread out enough, like, for example, like a lot of like industrial and specialty chemical manufacturing businesses, I mean, they got hammered, right? And they're like now maybe just starting to come out of what was a pretty prolonged recession. So like there could be good opportunities there. So that might be something where it's more of a top down, but then you try to figure out, all right, from there, which companies are, are, are best positioned um, or it's thematic and it's, Hey, this is again, and you want to talk about TAM, which we talked about, right? Yes. Total addressable market. Talk about that a little bit, please. And it's, you know, certainly there's sexy themes. There's things that, that, that are chasing money, right? Obviously you can't say that without thinking of AI right now. 
Um, that is the number one. That is the top of the line in terms of any sort of thematic investing when it comes to um, equities right now is, is artificial intelligence and the substantial potential impact on, on the global economy, right? So within that theme, there's so many different ways to go. So, right, then you have to start slicing and dicing which direction, what are you trying to capture? Of course, you know, everyone loves NVIDIA um, because they have their tentacles and everything that you possibly need. Because what do you need for AI to work? You need data, you need power of computing, and of course, NVIDIA checks all those boxes. So, you know, you kind of have to go through that. And then from a bottom-up standpoint, like you said, yeah, it could be you came across a business and you just started digging in um, because, you know, A, it got under your radar for some reason. You heard it from somebody. Um, the size of the company just, you know, something happened and it clicked and you start doing some digging and you say, look, uh, I got a couple of names that I've started positions in that I don't think necessarily the outlook in the sector is great, but. Yeah, I think I think energy is one of those names that you've been digging into now and everyone's kind of turning bearish on it. You know, right now, if you actually look at hedge fund exposure, it's the lowest it's been to energy in five years. Yeah, which to me is OK, I'll take that. I'll take yeah. that as a contrarian, you know, personal opinion that at some point exposure is going to come back. And fundamentally, oil and gas companies that are well capitalized, you go back to financial health that have been reducing their debt, that are focusing on cash flow generation, right, that are trading at very attractive valuations that have significant cash flow. And oil, just from a supply demand side, oil and gas, I mean, there's still a lot of challenges, right? So to me, that looks like you're still in a pretty good position with companies that have now significantly delevered and are in an incredible position financially. Absolutely. And, and another point we can make here, now that we brought up like oil and gas and energy, guys, make sure that also when you're comparing uh, stocks that you're also doing it with apples to apples comparisons, you do not want to start looking. And I, I've been victim to this when I started and I just, just didn't know better. I, I look back and I kind of cringe. When you look at a, a name like Exxon, trading at 10 times earnings, you cannot then look at a name like CrowdStrike and say it's too expensive at 80 times earnings. They are You're not going to get CrowdStrike for 10 times earnings, okay? Because this is where then the income statement matters, where gross profit margins matter and scalability, ec yeah. economies of scale. Because And you have to really understand that like when you look at a software name, a lot of times they're not posting um, gap operating profits, right? But you see that that's because they're trying to capitalize on a market right now uh, and they're spending a ton on sales and marketing so they can win that market share early and then and then maintain it. But if they actually wanted to cut that sales and marketing, they would be profitable. So you have to see where the operating leverage is, where they can eventually yeah. outpace their their expenditures and that 80% gross margins, okay, flow right to the bottom line. Whereas, and they don't have high CapEx software, whereas an oil and gas does. So this yep. is why it's really, really important, guys, to understand if you're going to do comparisons with stocks, which is super important when you're trying to figure out which ones to buy, do not compare Exxon to, to Salesforce, okay? Like, try and look at peer names, uh, and you'll be a lot better off. For sure. Yeah, no. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think, and part of that, you know, is, you know, I know we talked about a little bit about this earlier, but, you know, just thinking about the things that you're looking for. So, you talk about financial health market position or total addressable market. What is the opportunity set, of course, 
management team, incredibly ah, important. Thank you. Um, That's a perfect leeway right, right there. So especially if you're talking about in nuanced areas. like Go just, in, brother. Go in. Go to town. Continue, you know, talk about oil and gas, right? I mean, that's a very nuanced sector, very political, right? A lot of moving parts, a lot of regulation, right? You need strong operators, right? All those things. You need folks that know the industry, have been through the cycles. It's very different than maybe, you know, another industry where, you're focused on where you may not have that that ability to say, wow, this individual, because it's a it's a newer company, right? New technology. You don't have that backdrop to fall on and say, oh, yeah, well, they've done this before. Um, so there's challenges. So sometimes you just have to take a flyer on, look, what have they done? Um, where have they been before? Maybe they were with a startup that got bought out, right? So they've had success exiting another startup. They built it to scale. It got attractive enough to, to sell it. Now they started a new business. Uh, it's public. You're thinking about investing. Well, they've done it before. Maybe they've done it a couple of times. So Absolutely. I think, you know, track record experience um, from a management standpoint and a management team is, is obviously incredibly important. And guys, watch where the money goes. Are they selling shares? Yep. Or are they buying shares? Sure. Now listen, green, you can have a million and red flags right there. You can have a million reasons to sell. Fine, tax purposes, uh, family emergencies. Yeah. Fine, fine. No problem. Or that's how their salary is obtained. No problem. Sure. And you got to look into that. You one can't... reason you buy. There's only yeah. one reason you buy. Anytime I see insiders buy and I own the stock, I I have this rule that all the guys know. I always add more, even if I'm already at like a full weight. I add more because who knows it better than that guy? He, he can put his money in a million places. He's deciding to buy more shares of his own company. Right on. I also yeah. love founder-led companies. Love them. For sure. Love yep. them. Okay. No um, doubt about that's it. A big yeah, I mean, founder-led founder companies, right? I mean, there's, there's, I'd say pros and cons to founder-led companies, right? I mean, there's multiple pros, there's multiple cons. Some of the cons being that they have too much control. They have mm -hmm. full ability to decide on the direction of the company, who's going to keep them in place, who's going to be the checks and balances. Um, you know, that's certainly something that could go the, the, the wrong way, right? Depending on the situation, you also have the fact that, Hey, this individual is invested in this business. They are going to take the long-term view and do its best, not caring about every single quarterly earnings call, because that's not important to them. Right. Because yep. they the pressure's on them all the time. They, yep. they, they've got, you know, they own the majority of the company, potentially they own a substantial portion. They have a lot of latitude and flexibility to think long, longer term than say, you know, a CEO that just got hired and, you know, is paid based on the performance of the business and has to go to his board of directors and has to worry about all the external stakeholders. And he's a small fish in the pond when it comes to the actual ownership of the business, right? I mean, they can't think long term. It's yes. one of those like ironic situations, right? Where you want to invest long-term, but everything we do is on a day-to-day, quarter-to-quarter basis, right? Where every earnings report is scrutinized and stock sells off or, you know, rallies on one quarter's worth of earnings. I, you know, it's, it's unbelievable it's how silly. myopic we've become. It's, it's unreal. And, uh, and yeah, you make a great point. Uh, there are some cons, uh, one of them being, some founders are very good at getting a business off the ground. They're not good at scaling them. Sure, so as, yeah, as your business yeah. as your business enters different stages, uh, the founder's got to be able to be malleable enough to you know make edits to his style of managing and and executing uh, with regard to where that business is in its stage. You know, so well, that's yeah. a great point you make. And we've seen that over over time with a lot of businesses where 
ultimately somebody else was was brought in to actually run and operate the business, right? So great. You know hey, the company that you mentioned it first. I was like, you know what? You were one hundred percent right. And it's my it's my the goat stock. I call it. You know what it is? Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, Satya is the at, reason it is where it is right now. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about this. I mean, Satya Nadella is like, what, 55 maybe? I mean, he's got another 10 years. I mean, where is he going to end up on the uh, Mount Rushmore of CEOs? I mean, he's going to be He's got to be up there. Because Do you think it would be where, uh, where it is today with Balmer? <laughs> uh, no, no, not even no. close. I mean, yeah, Balmer's a great cheerleader and can probably rah-rah the, you know, the crowd, but Sweat he's stains off. coming all down. He, he's better off sitting on the, the clipper sideline, you know, fist pumping and trying to tackle players, you know. Oh, than, my uh, goodness. I mean, those, no. are, those are the things, right? I mean, in a lot of it in, in today's day and age, think about there's been a lot of success with a lot of the unicorn companies of, you know, 10 to 15 years ago that came out of either, you know, the tech bubble, et cetera, Um but great at the technology, great at understanding, you know, that aspect, but then actually scaling it uh, and executing it and being an operator and manager of, you know, people in the business where it just, you know, it falls short and you need to bring somebody else in, right? Sure thing. You can still be the vision. You can still control, you know, what are the, the goals and objectives and where you're trying to get to ultimately, but you need somebody the actual uh, to do the actual, you know, to work along the way. 100%. And that's why this is the perfect last segment for us here. Because we're talking about management teams. Now, I want to take that and transfer it over to how important management teams are, especially in a private setting. So you are a big private investor. But before I even ask you about you and your private investments, you have to walk me through, I believe it was in Dresden Horowitz, putting money into another pre-revenue unicorn during a, a heightened rate environment run by none other than Adam Newman of WeWork. You want to talk to me about what leverage this guy must have to get th that kind of yeah. investment dollars at that valuation after the debacle that he had at WeWork, the stories yeah. and the even Apple TV show that came out about how horrid that whole situation was. How does a guy like this do that, start up another company that has not done a dollar in revenue yet, it's already worth over a billion, from what's considered some of the smartest guys in the room in the VC world, you are in the private space, Steve. Walk me through how the hell that's even possible. I mean, honestly, it's tough. I mean, some of these people are just such good salesmen and saleswomen that they can just, they can sell it to you, right? They can sell the vision. He's done it once with WeWork. Now, certainly that came crashing down, right? But the concept and the actual business, um, right? was very successful while it was, right? So if you can strike, um, you know, strike gold again, is it worth it? Plus, I'll just say Andreessen Horowitz is a firm, a lot of respect for them. They also throw a lot of money um, at a lot of things, right? I mean, they raised like a four to $5 billion crypto fund at the top of the market. So mm. I'm not saying that's not going to work, but I'm just saying they've got a ton of capital to put to play, right? They continue to raise massive funds year over year. Um, and so they have the ability to take risks yeah. and, and to throw capital at things that probably 99% of us wouldn't. But that's also why they're arguably the, the most well-known VC shop. In the I world. just can't so, believe the, that's the biggest check they ever wrote in one shot. Yeah. How did you do that? Out of all people, like I really just I'm trying to picture that meeting where he he walks in and it just like the presentation is getting ready to start. and. Dude, that is unbelievable to me, man. So for 
but well, it's like, you know, to you. yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's like uh, David Spade, you know, it's like, you know, he could sell a, a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. I mean, I don't know, right? Some people <laughs> can just sell the future, the vision, uh, Tommy Boy classic right there. But um, yeah, I mean, when you have capital and you can put money to work and, and you have, that's also why they've got that capital because they go against the grain and they probably do things that no one else, nobody else would. So that's part of it. So they, they are one of the groups that obviously you say you, you give them a pass because you're like, all right, well, they got to know something. They, you know, maybe they know something that nobody else does. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I hear you there. It's tough. So, but the private market side is challenging. Talk me through what you're looking for. Are there any differences between you investing in a stock on a New York stock exchange versus you parking money into a private opportunity that came your way. Yeah. I mean, very different just based on the stage um, in the, in the businesses or companies life cycle. Right. So if you're doing something early stage, financial health is one of those things that basically you look at completely differently. It's basically what is their funding? Who are their VC partners or who are their strategic partners? Is there, you know, a lot of firepower behind that. Right. So that's kind of how you look at financial health. Because eventually they're going to have to raise more capital, right? And they have to be able to do so, go back to their major investors and say, hey, we're raising, you know, another couple hundred million or a few hundred million or whatever it is. And that has to be a viable solution. So that's kind of, you know, the way I'd look at the financial health there. You're not looking at the balance sheet, so to speak, generally, right? You're not yeah. looking at cash flow statement because they're not cash flowing <laughs> generally, right? Um you so. want to know what I find most fascinating about the private markets versus maybe a uh, budding growth company on the public markets? Uh, how people view capital raises. Yeah. I find that to be the most funny thing ever because uh, when yeah. you invest in a private opportunity uh, and you see additional capital raises, even though you are being diluted, you are cheering it because it's a testament to people actually wanting to put money in the company well. to fund its growth. With one caveat that they're doing an up round and not a down round. So correct, correct. Um, which that is absolutely very important. How how the money is being raised and how that's happening is very. But very that's important. also why I'd argue you shouldn't be a public company until you get to a certain maturity level of again financial stability, growth, other metrics. Right. I mean, companies. I think during right two thousand two thousand one saw the fast money, the quick money went public. I mean, just should have no right even still being public, right? They should still be private. Yeah. Um, and there's so many companies like that now, less and less companies are going public. The IPO market's basically, you know, effectively just completely dried up. Yeah, it's been Over dead. the last 18 months, there is no IPO market. I think there's like, I mean, literally like- We're single, talking about like two or three companies that single are- Single digit IPOs. Pulse. No, it's like Arm and Instacart and things like that. So- I mean, that's part of it, right? Is that some of these companies shouldn't be public in the first place. Um, but yeah, it's a completely different view. That's why companies generally, if they have the funding, usually if you're going public, it's because you don't have the private funding. So that's potentially a red flag right yes. there. Um, if we're talking about like the private or the public, sorry, private to public, it's easier to go, oh, it's hot money. Like let's do the IPO. Well, if you're probably really trying to do what's in the best interest of your investors and the long-term viability of the business, you probably stay private longer. Right. I mean, that's just kind of a reality, I think. But at the same time, where I'll fight you back on that is that it's becoming very frustrating when they finally do take companies public and they're yeah, way past their growth stages that you yeah. wish you could have got in on. Right. Like, I wish Airbnb went public five years sooner. They like, sure, take it yeah. public to us at a hundred billion dollar valuation. Well, 
And uh, it's been it's done nothing in, in years now since it's been public. But it's here's annoying. what I'll argue with you every single day of the week on that. That's not their job. Their no, job no, is, it's not. Their job is to put the, put the business in the best possible position for their current investors. Yes. Um, and then, you know, every other key stakeholder. No, they just me worry. being salty. It's just yeah. me being salty. Absolutely. Not to worry about, you know, whether other people are able to get in it, you know, a $500 million company or, you know, $5 billion company. Right. I mean, it just. It's just so much easier to. Uh, when yeah, there's a lot the of private, limitations. When, when, exactly, well, first off, going public is a pain in the ass. Okay. All the reporting, all the quarterly reports, the. The freaking uh, yeah. road shows you have to go on, the presentations and investor days you have to do, the scrutiny you have to deal with every single day, hiring the whole investor relations team and the press releases and getting on CNBC and all that stuff. It's expensive. It's annoying. You open yourself up yeah. to a lot of legal uh, recourse, all that kind of stuff. So I get it 100%. At the same time, though, uh, and I've made this uh, point in previous uh, Instagram videos that I've done. Uh, the barriers to investing in stocks has fallen so much over the last 20 to 30 years with these discount brokerages. It almost makes me feel as though uh, the upper class, the, 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 the people who are cut from a different cloth, they, uh, they're like, you know what, we're going to privatize these gains. We're not going to deal with the headache of the, of the financial markets. Yeah. We'll, we'll make our, our 10, 20, 30, 50x privately. And then when we're ready, we'll take it public. And the issue I have with that is that the last four years or so, it's really felt like the, the public markets have just been a liquidity pool for these guys to finally cash out in retail. You know, like, oh, you're going to really tell me right now, Scoo, and even though probably not, but you're going to tell me right now, those Rivian $185 price targets were, were legit. It well, was yeah, worth no, as much course, as yeah. like Tesla or as much as Ford. Because those are the same companies, you know, same same banks who are helping, you know, with the IPO deals. So no. Exactly. So um, I just, I hate that, they, you know, the everyone knows the stock that, comes public. It's already worth more than four without selling a vehicle, okay? And then they yeah. go and say it's still got a 2x upside and they keep those price targets there just long enough so when the uh, the lockup period's over, they can all dump on us. And it just it just gets annoying and I, I wonder if they really know that we've noticed. We I mean, notice. The reality is, is in the, the public markets are literally just a form of liquidity, as you mentioned. Um, because at some point, right, you either have VCs, you have limited partners that have invested through an Andreessen Horowitz or another VC firm into a really high quality unicorn, right? Well, at some point, Andreessen Horowitz wants to return that money to their, their investors. So you have to because, A, they want those investors to have some capital so they can raise new funds and those, those investors can reinvest that mm -hmm. those proceeds. It's so much easier to get, you know. Your your limited partners or investors to reinvest in your next fund if you're if you're sending them huge distribution checks because one of their big you know long term bets just went public and you just made 20 x. Oh yeah, hey, oh you're you're currently raising for fund fifteen. Yeah, sure. Here, just take the check you gave me and just roll it right back into yeah, new. Yeah, exactly. So cycle, cycle that's in. that's the cycle of the private markets. You have to have liquidity because these private fund terms have x number of years of, of time frame, usually twelve to fifteen years. But at some point, you have to unwind these funds and you have to return capital to shareholders. So at some point now you have to have an exit plan. It could be a smaller company gets bought out by another private business or it goes the private equity route and it get, then gets bought by a strategic. Or at some point, 
you know, with some of these bigger IPOs, like you just mentioned ARM, et cetera, there's nowhere else to go, right? Nobody's going to no. buy them and, make, and keep them private. So they just have to go to the public markets for liquidity. For sure. So for sure. That's the life cycle of those businesses. And for better, for worse, it's really the only thing that works within the current, you know, construct of what the financial markets look like. So my issue is just how Wall Street sell side plays into oh, it. Yeah, they give a, price targets they know are not achievable, yeah. and they're, they're, you cannot you cannot defend those that, price oh, targets. Hey, that's another episode right there. So. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. That's my bone to pick as well. So, uh, we're gonna end this like we we we've been, and I'm gonna ask you a random question. All right, uh, and that's how we're gonna call it a night. So, Tiger Woods is no longer with Nike. Steve. Look into your magic ball here. Okay, your crystal ball. Where is he going? Oh, don't tell me you don't geez. know because obviously none of us know. I know you don't golf with the guy, even though I know you wish you did. And I know you think your swing is just as good. But tell me where yeah, you think no. he's going. <laughs> I mean, first of all, this is probably, you know, a long time coming um, in terms of the ultimate, you know, divorce, if you will. Um, uh, that's called like you for, want, uh, that's like, that's the word wrong word for him man divorce yeah, yeah, that, well, way to you pick know, your words there <laughs> hey you get you get you get what you get so uh, <laughs> are you looking for i'm looking for a brand who a what, what brand is, yeah what brand okay. is he going to? i didn't what know brand? if you're looking for like oh is he gonna leave the pga now and go to live no 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 yeah yeah what brand is he gonna sign with now that nike's out of the picture rumors are it's gonna be on no that'd be insane i mean him and him and federer type Right. So him and him and Roger are tight. Okay. Roger Federer. So Roger Federer is basically the key individual spokesperson for on. Interesting. So there's some there's some legs there. I, I saw a Seeking Alpha article that said on is 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 maybe leading right now. Rumors are on's in the the, the uh leading the pack here for the win. Yeah, so he so they gave on gave Federer ownership, like I think pre-IPO. Um I think it's worth like several hundred million dollars now, of course. Of course. But that, I mean, that, that would be, I mean, those guys, they're, they're pretty tight from over the years. I mean, golfers and tennis players, you know, I mean, they kind of run in the same circles. Um, that would certainly be a big shock. I feel like, um, but I mean, Tiger's at a point in his career. Yeah, I, I can't see, cap. I can't see him going. I mean, I think an upstart brand like that would make sense. I can't see him going like Adidas or anything like that. Just doesn't seem right. Maybe um, can a Puma pull it off? A little Puma's bit like, like kind of middle you know, with obviously you got Ricky Fowler on the golf side. They've tried to make a lot of strides. Um, I like the on prediction. I wish I would have come up with that myself, but um, I'll I'll double down on that if that's uh, all right. Let's see that happen. Let's see that happen. Um, I mean, th that would probably be pretty good for the stock. I have to say, you know, considering they're on an eight nine billion dollar market cap right now, and I made them my pick when I was doing that video on. Uh, on that whole fantasy football stock type thing I was doing. Um, I'm interested in the stock. I'm not sure if you saw my model that I sent over your uh, way, uh, but definitely give that a look. If you haven't seen it, I put it in the group chat. But it's very interesting because he would pretty much be leading the front for their whole entire golf initiative. They have no golf products right now on. They yeah, don't have any no. golf wear at all. Well, that's why, that's where I could see it working, right? Because I, I, he could, I mean, not that he needs the economics, but... You could pioneer a that chance for him to literally be not that he wasn't, you know, the face of golf or Nike, but the face of something completely new, kind of hot, sexy, up and coming. You got Federer on the tennis side. Um, they're obviously taking market share at this point. Um, Puma would be a good one just because they're kind of also 
like the like the fun, you know, kind of revitalized brand that's a little bit That's more what I was clear. thinking, yeah. Um, I mean, the one that I think that, I mean, that if you just talk about just gaining traction, obviously, like Lululemon, but I mean, they're not even in in that conversation of like a an athlete, I don't think at this point. But I mean, that's Yeah. something that is probably not Lulu too would be just crazy. Lulu would be wild. Just how much, how much, how much stride they've like just the strides they've made over the last. I, I'm an idiot for not owning the stock. I'm an idiot. Just, insane. just watching it all these years, I'm just an idiot. Yeah. You're like, yep. Uh, probably should have bought that, but Yep. I just don't see them going that direction. I don't know. Who would you say you rule out? Like you say Adidas, Reebok, like they're not doing anything. I don't think so. It just Under doesn't Under seem Armour? it, it to me. It seems like, look, he already had the best of the best in Nike. Like you're going to go to Under Armour or Adidas or Reebok. I think, like you said, if anything, it's going to be something that's like cool and exciting where you can kind of sail into the future. Um, maybe he leverages that to get Charlie Woods in, you know, um, Oh, good point. Good in point. the future, Look at you. right. Cause he's probably going to be a stud. It looks like, I mean, That's and what they're saying. that could be like the deal where like, you know, who knows, but All Puma, right. yeah, Puma's interesting. I mean, they got, I think what Neymar, maybe like Usain Bolt, some of those, Yeah, you know, yeah. folks. I'm a So huge, I'm a huge Puma guy. Uh, I don't know if it's the European side of me, but I love, I love Puma. Um, Yeah. I, I've been rocking those shoes for the longest time. I cried when I threw my first pair of Pumas out uh, when I was in uh, elementary school. Uh, but let's see if he does it. They, they have, they revitalized themselves, I feel. I feel like they're actually working themselves into the conversation Yeah. of a respected brand again. Um, and I like their shoes a lot. I like their, their just casual wear. But uh, I, I'm still going to say On is probably the leading company Yeah, here, I funny enough, considering they're the smallest out of the group. I'd be down with that. I mean, I think like you mentioned Under Armour, man. I mean, what a complete I mean, they, you know, for years they were everyone was like, "Oh man, they're going to, you know, they're challenging Nike and just completely blew it, man." Dude, blew it, man. You want to talk about, again, coming back to the management conversation. Awful. There you have it right there. So, Steve, always a pleasure doing these. We'll see how it shakes out. I hope everyone Yes, enjoyed hey, so this much episode. for keeping this to 30 minutes too, Yeah, so. I'm, 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 I apologize, man. Just We get going, and I just can't help myself. Anyway, Steven, thank you so much. We'll catch you in the next episode, bud. Yep, yeah, thanks, guys. Talk soon, man.